Our Father, as we press through in our time together in the Psalms, we, we know that given to ourselves alone, um, we would be misformed. We'd be shaped by the liturgies of the world that surround us. And yet you've given us this deposit within your holy word to shape us, to help give us a grammar for how to pray, for how to engage you, for how to live in front of you through all of the complexities of our lives. And I pray that in your mercy, you would meet us in this morning hour. Open our minds, open our hearts to perceive those wonders out of your word. And again, if any of that happens this morning, we give you the praise because we will know that it is because of the operative work of your spirit. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, uh, welcome to you all. And we've, we're in a series on the Psalms, and uh, if you, I had a few people stop me after last week and say, uh, that, those were the best three lessons I've heard in a while, or something like to the effect of, in other words, information overload. Um, and, and that's what happens when you don't teach for a while in a class, you know, things get pent up, and I think I just sort of spewed on you, so I apologize. Uh, for that. So what I thought I'd do today, if it's okay, is put it in reverse, go back and and talk through some of these bigger issues that I'm trying to get at because um, the, the title of our series, Praying with the Psalms or Praying Through the Psalms or something of that nature, um, is a kind of a big umbrella for something a little bit more particular that I'm after. Where we're three weeks, the Psalter's big, 150 Psalms. I'm actually trying to wrestle with you and to think through the way in which the Psalms are located within our morning prayer and the way in which the Psalms are located um, a little bit in evening prayer, though not as much there, and then in Compline, which is what we'll do uh, next week as well, thinking about the way in which our liturgy has shaped itself in such a way that actually mirrors and reflects the Psalms. I've, I've told you this story uh, so many times. One of my favorite lines from a colleague of mine, uh, Lyle Dorset. I've heard Lyle say many, many times to people, what part of the liturgy, meaning the Book of Common Prayer, what, which part of it actually don't you like? Is it the praying part or is it the Bible part? So would you like, which one's not you know, up your... Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to give some thought myself um, to the, because I'm entering now in, you know, this is, I'm, I'm a bit of a newbie in your world. For some of you, this is old hat. But I'm trying to give some thought theologically, conceptually, spiritually to the way in which the liturgy is actually shaped and how that shape is, is, is embodying something for you and me that, that's forming us, not just within our minds, but within our whole person. So if you remember from last week, and this is where I want to put it back in reverse to put, put these things in the right theological perspective. You look great this morning, by the way. I noticed that. Um, in the right theological perspective. is uh, We are primarily um, lovers. And I, that, let, let me back up on that. What, what do I mean to say that we're primarily lovers? And I come out of the Reformed tradition, and I still identify myself as one who's within the Reformed stream of, of theological reflection. Um, but if there's a danger within the Reformed tradition, the danger is that it emphasizes cognition or the mind over against the other faculties that make us human beings. 
And this, by the way, um, is something that you might hear within Christ, the Christian apologetic world with language and talk about worldview, Christian worldview. In other words, if we can just get people's minds, if we could just get the right ideas into the world at large, then we can shape our nation to be the Christian nation that it should be. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of books that have been written on this, and I won't name the big name authors who write that kind of stuff. But that kind of notion that if we can just get the minds of the people, then we can arrest the country and, and, and then propel it into its proper Christian identity. And here's the problem with that. The problem is that we're not primarily or solely minds. That was the promise of the Enlightenment. Now, you remember this, right, with Descartes' famous, I think, therefore, I am. Um, or, or, uh, uh, um, you know the story, right? I mean, Descartes said that he was sitting in a stove-heated room in Germany. He's ready to throw off everything that he'd ever been taught before in his Aristotelian tradition. And, uh, and then he says, what is the foundation upon which everything else can be built? Well, what if my experiences aren't real or aren't true? What if, what if my experiences really are a dream? I mean, it's really the, the kind of stuff that makes you avoid philosophy in college. I get it. But what, what, if, what if it's just really a dream? And, uh, and Descartes says, okay, I'll grant all of that. So then what is the indubitable foundation for knowledge? Well, even if what I am experiencing does not correspond to reality, the one thing I do know is that I'm a thinking self. I'm perceiving something. I think, therefore, I am. You know, solipsism is that philosophical belief that you're the only thing that exists in the universe. I heard um, Alvin Plantinga, who's one of the leading uh, Christian philosophers in, in America, uh, interviewed one time, and he said he actually ran across somebody in a philosophy department who was a bona fide solipsist. So he really believed philosophically that he was the only thing that existed in the world. And so um, Plantinga apparently asked some of the colleagues, so um, tell me, what is it like working with a solipsist? And the answer was, we treat him very well, because if he goes, we all go. That was it. <laughs> So, uh, that was, that's not on script, that was off. Um, but the point is, the point is, we are not primarily or solely thinking selves. And this gets us back into St. Augustine, which leads us back into deep theological reflection on the Bible. What is it that Augustine said all in the 4th and 5th century? And, I'm, and I'm, I'm, my appreciation for Augustine, St. Augustine continues to grow. Augustine said, we are lovers you know that, that line that he says, our souls are restless till they find rest in, in thee. Um, or, or what it means to be a human is to love and to be loved. That we're, we're, we're passionately pursuing that all the time. And what we do in this sort of desire and drive to love, to, to want, is we embody and we involve ourselves in liturgies that shape us and form us according to our desires. And it's not just mental action, as, as important as mental action is. It's how I pay the mortgage primarily, is teaching students about mental action. So it's important. But it's the way in which our minds and our affections and our feelings and our will all mutually influence one another and how we pursue those things that we really love. That was the sort of liturgical point we were trying to make last week and I'm emphasizing again today what is our ultimate aim and desire in life? St. Augustine, reading the Bible well, would say, our ultimate aim and drive and desire is the enjoyment of God. And everything else is a pale, mirrored reflection of that. 
It's like what C.S. Lewis said in, in one of his books, where he said, you know, we have been offered a holiday at the sea, but we continue to make mud pies in our little mud pond. You know, we've been offered a holiday at the sea and God, but what we do because we're desiring people, we're lovers who want to love and to be loved, is that we'll go anywhere we can to find it. I've been reading, and I mentioned this last week, and it's been helping me think through this. James Smith, now a couple of books, Desiring the Kingdom, uh, Imagining the Kingdom, where James Smith said, and I thought very provocatively, you know, Victoria's Secret is on to something. Right, that's what we talked about last week. There's, she's on, that secret is, there, there's something there. Because whether it's eros or agape, however you want to talk about love, that taps into something deep within who we are as people. We're desirous. We're hungry. We want something. But what the Bible tells us and what St. Augustine helps us to see through the lens of the Bible is that all of that longing that you have is yelling at you and me that what you ultimately yearn and long for is God. And when you try to find that ultimate satisfaction that you're so hungry for in finite realities, as good as they are, then you are going to be sorely disappointed and lacking and empty. It's like dying of thirst and thinking that we can assuage our thirst by licking a salt block. It's not going to assuage our thirst. We're hungry for something more. But Augustine was helpful here because he's not calling on us now then to leave all of our relationships or all of the earthly cares and loves that we have and then go off into the desert like St. Anthony. He's not calling us to do that. What he's saying is to recognize that all of these relationships, family, children, good wine, a good restaurant, a day at the lake, a day at the beach, all of those enjoyments are uses that are meant to drive us toward our ultimate enjoyment which is in God. It begins to help shape the way in which we view all of life through that particular lens. Because, and this is the larger point, we are all worshiping something. We are. Whether we're worshiping is not the question. Because we are desirous, hungry people. So whether we're worshiping is not the question. The question is, who are we worshiping? And we involve ourselves in rituals and we involve ourselves in practices that are both mental, but they're also effective and they're bodily. You know what the liturgical action of the mall is, right? The liturgy of the mall. And James Smith talks a lot about the liturgy of the mall. You know, I think our liturgical action is the liturgy of the mall. This one. See the credit card? Swipe. Right? That's our embodied action. Swipe. I mean, even, even my, or in our technological world, I was talking about this with Gil Cracky one time. I mean, even my three-year-old knows that when he wants to change the conversation or move to another idea, you swipe it, right? There's the iPad, you swipe it onto a new screen. We, I don't think we even begin to know how our embodiment of various things is forming us. It's shaping us. So here's the definition of liturgy for you and for me. Those practices that shape our view on what human flourishing actually is. Those practices that shape our view on what human flourishing is. And there are liturgies all around us that are telling us to embody something, to be something, because of what we think human flourishing actually is. What does it mean to flourish as a human? I mean, I think about this in relationship to my children, and I wrestle with this big time. 
I mean, what is it that the sort of competing liturgies of the world tell me is ultimately what human flourishing will be for my three boys? Answer, academic success, social success, athletic success. Right? And then we embody ourselves. And I, all of those are important. My boys are hopefully involved in all three. But the point is, that's what the world says primarily, the competing form around it that's forming and shaping how I view what it is to be a parent. And this is why getting into the liturgy of the Word, like morning prayer, is so helpful for you and me, not just in my individual relationship with God one-on-one, but in my corporate embodied view of all of life. And what human flourishing, what shalom, to use the proper biblical term, what shalom is all about? What does flourishing really look like? A certain kind of bank account? A certain kind of XYZ? You can fill in the blank. What does human flourishing actually mean and involve ourselves in? So with that in mind, that's the bigger idea I'm trying to think about. We're all involved in liturgical practices, sacred and secular. We all are. And as we come into church week in and week out, think about morning prayer. Just this morning that you and I were a part of an evening prayer does something very similar. What is the move that's made in morning prayer and then in evening prayer? You have a confession of sin. You have an absolution. And then you move from confession. You move to absolution into either morning prayer, open our lips, you can say the rest, and our mouths shall throw forth thy praise. Or in evening prayer, it's, O God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Psalm 71. Did you realize that right after the confession of sin, that right after the absolution, both in morning prayer and in evening prayer, the open our lips so that our mouths will declare your praise is Psalm 51, verse 16. And in evening prayer, it's Psalm 70, verse 1. Now, I'm, not going to, I'm going to spend a lot of time in Psalm 51 with you this morning, but, and, and not as much in Psalm 70. But can I read it to you, Psalm 70? I don't know if you have Bibles or not, um, or phone apps. But let me read this to you. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame, who say, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. There's Augustine 101. The ultimate enjoyment of life is the refiguration and reconfiguration and the recalibration of what is ultimate and important. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation, your Yeshua, say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my deliverer. And my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. So what is it that Psalm 51 and Psalm 70 verse 1, O God, makes speed to save us? Um, I think what you have here. And both of these are a kind of tip of, iceberg, of the iceberg. We see this, for example, in the ways in which the New Testament might quote the Old Testament. 
Now, Paul will say something in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Um, it says in Isaiah chapter 49, um, the day, Behold, the day of salvation will come. And then Paul says, Now is the day of salvation. So that when you find the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, it's often a tip of an iceberg that's an inviting you back to that original text to read it more fully and completely. And that's what I did with Psalm 70 here and also 51, was to go back to the psalm itself, which we only get in laconic, diminished form there at the beginning of the, of the invitatory of morning prayer. Right? You've been absolved of your sins. You've been told that you're forgiven. And now there's the exclamation, O oh Lord, open our lips and our mouth will declare your praise. That particular move that we have of confession of sin, the recognition of absolution that you're forgiven, that then moves into this cry, open our lips and we will praise you, is the exact movement that we find in the psalm itself. There's a deep a theological reflection on the Scriptures that are shaping and forming the way in which our liturgy is shaped in and of itself. What both of these Psalms, Psalm 51 and Psalm 70, are telling us in the midst of our worship is that we are people whose fundamental identity, what we are at the core of our being, our DNA, are people that cannot make worship happen. We can't make religion happen. But we are in a position of complete and utter dependence on the grace of our Lord to open our lips so that our mouths can declare praise. That's what both of them are saying. Oh Lord, if worship is going to happen, if the proper honor of Your name is going to occur in this next hour of corporate worship together, in morning prayer or evening prayer, if that's going to happen, then it's going to have to happen because of the operative work of Your own grace. Not our religious expression. Not the ability of ourselves to pull up by our moral bootstraps. It's none of that. It's a recognition that You are a God of grace and we are in desperate need of You to open our lips so that we can give You the praise that You're worthy to have. That is a liturgical move. That's a cultural, religious practice that we are involved in in morning prayer that is shaping us, wittingly or unwittingly, in how we understand our relationship to God and the world and our fundamental identity. Who are we? They're imperatives. Addressed to God on the far side of our confession and our absolution. The honest revelation of our true identity and our true selves. So what you see here, and and we just did this in morning prayer. And again, this is me sort of thinking through this for myself as well. But what you see in morning prayer and the way it moves from confession to absolution to then praise is really what's on the cup of our famous Advent mug, coffee mugs now. Right, The simul eustus et peccator. There it is. Right here in Psalm 51. Right in the beginning of our liturgy. We have sinned and erred. We have strained. We have, we have gone away like lost sheep. That's who we are. We're sinners. And we are forgiven. You're absolved of your sin. That's who you and I are. You, you remember this last week, uh, don't you? That I made the illustration to... Uh, to, to Jacob wrestling with God at the river Jabbok. And that was very penetrating. And I don't think the Bible, when it gives biblical narratives and stories, wastes any space in the biblical narratives. 
Matter of fact, they're often very terse. You wish you had more a dramatic insight into certain aspects, but the Bible gives you something very terse so that whenever things are rehearsed for you, they're pretty important. So here's Jacob, and he's by the river Jabbok, and what does the angel of the Lord, who is God Himself incarnated at that moment, what does the angel of the Lord say to him? What is your name? I'm Jacob. I'm supplanter. I'm deceiver. We're about to see the fundamental identity of, J- of Jacob move from Jacob to Israel. But before that move took place from Jacob, the deceiver, to Yisrael, those who strive with and for God, before that happened, Jacob had to confess, my name, who I am, is Jacob. We do that every week. Every week. We come into church together in our collective liturgy, whether we're thoughtful and reflective about it or not, we come in and we confess before God Almighty together. Our names are Jacob. That's who I am. I'm a sinner. And I do it too. You do as well. I mean, I put my tie on. I spray the starch when I'm ironing. I mean, we all do these things to sort of beef ourselves up. And I get it. I'm, I'm you know, keep doing that. Um, but so we, we put on our masks. We have performance anxiety when it comes to our kids. Me too. I mean, we all have those things, right? Where we're trying to create this sort of picture and perception of ourselves to the world around us. We're all involved in the activity, and it's exhausting, isn't it? But we're involved in it. And here we have in our liturgy something that's forcing us and shaping us and forming us to recognize that despite all of the masks that we put on, all of the show, all of the veneer, all of the shoe polish, what we are at the end of the day primarily are people who have offended against His holy law. So we are. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm a sinner. Hi, Mark. It's like alcoholics. That's what it is. That's who we are. Nice to have you today. So what does this do after we recognize who we are? Then it leads us into the invitatory and the call to worship. But before the call, before the psalm, the imperative is addressed to God in Psalm 51 language. Open our lips and our mouths will declare your praise. So can I spend the last few minutes talking with you about Psalm 51 and then maybe we'll take some questions. You know the psalm, right? I mean, it's a classic. Um, by the way, I was reading uh, in, in the, is it Hatcher's book, the commentary on the American prayer book. Um, she was saying that in the Eastern Church, they begin every worship service with a whole reading of Psalm 51. I was fascinated by that. So here's the title to the choir master of Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Uh-oh. You remember that story, right? 2 Samuel 11. That was the part where it says in 2 Samuel 11 that when the kings were supposed to go out to battle, there's David on the rooftop. And he looks out and he sees Bathsheba, who was cling, uh, taking a bath, um, cleansing herself. Um, you know how all that works out spatially with regard to where you take a bath and how the king can see. I, you, that's speculative. I don't know. But there she is, and there he is. And um, and he sends. For, he asks who she is, and his servants very deftly they know how to speak to the king. They said, "We believe that that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, right?" And um, David sins for her because, as the Bible says, the Bible's not Gnostic about these things, she was beautiful in her appearance. So he took her and he lay with her and then 
bad news came, I'm pregnant. You know the story. It's a powerful narrative, actually, that reveals that Uriah, who was out fighting with Joab on behalf of his king, the Hittite, that he was, came back and was told to go down and you know, take your shoes off. It was kind of a euphemism for, you know, go. You, you've, been in a, you've been in a tent with a lot of guys for a long time. Go spend the evening with your wife. So you get, but he, where, where is he? He's outside. He can't go because the men are in battle. I mean, what you have here is this view that the Davidic king, David himself, the man after God's own heart, is acting in such a way that does not accord with God's covenant with him, but Uriah the Hittite, who is drunk, right, is acting more in accord than David does. And all hell breaks loose. I mean, it's a mess. Um, he sends his own death warrant with Uriah. You know the story, right? Uriah uh, is, 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 takes his own uh, death, death notice to Joab, and it says, when you're in the battle... Take the, put Uriah on the front line and then back away from him, and uh, which is you know he's going to be murdered. And so he gets, he's, he, die, he dies. Bathsheba mourns him, and then she comes into his house. And uh, and you know well let's move on until Nathan comes, the prophet. And Nathan tells this rather harrowing little parable for David. And again, here you have the biblical narratives that typically clip along, boom, 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 and he did this, and he did that, and he did this. And then we come to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and it just slows down. It's like park here for a little bit. This is very important what happens. So Nathan comes in, and he tells, he tells the king, oh, by the way, um, there's this man, he had a lamb, it was, precious, they were poor, it was a precious little lamb, it was, it was like a dog, um, it was number one, their number one little pet, and then they had a rich neighbor who had all kinds of sheep, and you know how the story goes, right? So he goes, and the neighbor takes his lamb and kills his lamb and feeds it to his guest, and David is enraged at this kind of brutality, this, the, the murder of it, the insensitivity of it, the, the, the abuse of power that's at play there, and then Nathan just flips it on him, boom! You're the man, right? He's like, whoa. And uh, what does David do? He doesn't do what Saul does, which is quite fascinating in the narrative. He doesn't begin to offer all these excuses. He just repents. I was wrong. He goes and he, does, he doesn't bathe, he doesn't shave. He's praying over because the child is going to be lost. This is a powerful scene. And, and by the way, David is forgiven. We know that. Because there's a promise that was made. This is the point. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what was the promise to David? That even if the king sin, I will continue to show my chesed, my loving kindness to him. Read the Davidic covenant, because it unfolds in the narrative. I promise that even if the Davidic king sin, if he returns to me, I will show my mercy and love to him. And David does it. But let's not think there aren't the effects that go on, because you're into chapter 13, and there you have Amnon who had a stepsister named Tamar, and he really liked her, and before too long, he's raping her. Right. So what does sin do in the book of Samuel? It does what sin does. It breeds more, and it grows, and it festers into something rather ugly. But here is David, having been confronted, having been brought face to face with the core identity of who he is, the abuse of power, the murder, the adultery. It's bad, real bad. And in fact, when you compare it to what Saul did, have you ever done this before? Does it bother you? I mean, I mean Saul, the Spirit of God, moves, leaves Saul. Why? Because he didn't kill everybody. He's like, well, I mean, is that... But that's not. we can't think of this according to our own logic. 
This is governed by the grace and the election of God. I've chosen you, David, to be my man. My covenant is set on you. So the story of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and the story of Psalm 51 is justification by grace. That's what it is. It's the fact that the sinner recognized who he was and he confesses it to the Lord and he is forgiven by the grace of God alone, period. says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Now, there's no monkeying around. There's the honest admission that we're a sinner. Confessing our sins to God and to others when need be is, is, uh, is elixir for the soul. And we, were, we were having a family meeting last week. We were, we've been on family vacation, so like all hell's broken loose in our family. All the rules are gone. This has been it's nasty. Um, so my wife and I were like, we gotta, we got to get this horse by the reins. And so we're, you know, we've written out these rules. My wife, she's very thoughtful on this, these rules on a chalkboard about you know, our house. and da, da, da. <laughs> So we're sitting there, we're having a very serious conversation at the table. And my middle son, Jackson, says, I have something to confess. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, okay, Jackson, what do you need to confess? I say bad words in my mind when you don't know it. <laughs> and I said, okay, buddy, well, I'm glad that you got that off your chest. Right. Um, I mean, we, 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 we confess um, the things that we do in, our, in thought, word, and deed, right? In thought, word, and deed. And here he is. Here's the psalmist saying, wash me and cleanse me. Why? Verse 3. Can I just work through this with you? Listen to this. Because I know my transgression. Against you and you only have I sinned. In other words, it's a kind of reverse Augustinianism here, right? All of life is the enjoyment of God. So you can say, for example, when I'm loving my family or I'm loving the goodness of life, it's only you that I'm loving. Like you're the one that's forcing me all to you, Lord. But it's the same with sin, right? I mean, when we sin against our neighbor, because we never sin in an island, sin affects other people, doesn't it? You just know this in the four walls of your own house. You know how that works. Me too. But it's against you only that I've really sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight so that you're justified in your words. You're blameless in your judgment. Do you know what what David is doing here in these first five verses of Psalm 51? He is appealing to the character of God. Right out of Exodus 32, 33, and 34, that scene of the golden calf where God comes down and he says, I'm going to destroy them. Moses, will start all over with with you And Moses says, intercedes for them. And then God reveals His name in Exodus 34. And what is His name? Full of love, patient, long-suffering. He's, he's merciful. And yet, you are right in your judgment against me. That's Exodus 34 as well. I, I don't forget guilt. I am a just and holy God. I see sin and have to take it seriously. Here is David appealing to the Scriptures in his address to God. This is who you have said you are, and I'm appealing to you on the basis of your own mercy, of your own identity. Purge me, verse 7, with hyssop, I'll be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And you know, I mean, can you sense this with David? The physical reality of sin. There are psychosomatic things, we won't go into that. But there's a psychosomatic reality with sin as well. I mean, it affects his body, he's hurting. Hide your face from my sins. Blot them out, all my iniquities. Here's another line from our suffrages that we did this morning. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God. Do you hear that word? Create in me a clean heart. I mean, what was it that God did in Genesis chapter 1? It's very very just straightforward, isn't it? And God said, fiat lukes, right? Let there be light. And what's the next phrase? And there was light. And God said, let this happen. Next phrase, and it happened. It's the creative, powerful effect of the Word of God. That it's God's Word that has the ability to speak into our world and create something out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo, which is the same with our sinful hearts of flesh. But out of that tohu avohu, out of that formlessness and voidness of our own lives, that He can speak into it and create something new. Paul taps into this, doesn't he? If any person is in Christ, new creation. We're in it right now in the new creation. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Then he, sa- then he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with the willing spirit. Why? Because then I'm going to proclaim it. This, this gets into our worship. Once I've recognized who I am, once I've appealed to your character and know that now I'm forgiven, the next thing is, now I've got to exclaim it. This is what we do in our liturgy. We confess our sins. We're absolved. Next line, open our lips and our mouths will declare your praise. It's exactly what David is doing. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of your gracious character. I'm absolved. And then when I know that I'm absolved, I can't help but talk about it. Praise. Then we're into verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. And then the verse that you know. O Lord, open my lips. Verse 15. And my mouth will declare your praise. There are lots of competing liturgies out there that we are involved in, whether we're thinking about it or not, that are, to use the proper term, if I can borrow this from Smith, that are misforming us. Me too. I hope you realize this. I watched it. I'm I'm in the middle of it too. And the gift of our weekly worship together, why we need it so badly, why we come hungry every week for it, is because we want our fundamental identities to be shaped by practices that affect the way we think, the way our bodies move as we kneel in that posture, even our bodies and our wills, according to the norm of God's authoritative Word, who He is. Who are we? We're Jacob. We're Jacob that needs to be renamed that needs to have a new heart created in us. And once we recognize the creation of that new heart, what is the only thing that we can do after that? Open our lips, and our mouths will declare your praise. Okay, a few minutes. You want to bat some things around? You angry about something? Can I read this to you while you bat it around? Dean, see. I wanted to read this to you. By the way, great resource here. I don't know if we have it in our library or not. A love's redeeming work and the Anglican quest for holiness. It's all just primary source stuff from uh, various Anglican divines, uh, theologians. Can I read to you a, a, a poem real fast from John Donne? A great, uh, uh, the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, actually, for years in the, in the 17th century. This is a hymn to God the Father. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which is my sin? Though it were done before, wilt thou forgive those sins through which I run 
and do run still, though still I do deplore. And when thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin by which I've won others to sin and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. But swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I have no more. Isn't that beautiful? That's Psalm 51, right? It's a recognition of who we are and then the recognition that our fundamental identity is changed because of the creation of a new heart that he has done. All right, I think we have time for one question, then, then we'll go. I'm since some of you have... about that poem is that yeah. not only is he playing on his name, Done, huh. but his, his wife was Ann Moore and she had died. So he's when I have no more. It's a, a, double, a double pun there. I'm going to take your class someday. Lord, I'm going to take yours with swap. That was great. Thank you for that. Wonderful insight. Uh, coffee. This is not so much a question as a comment on, on the Psalms. Yes, sir. I was very impressed when I read Eric Metaxas' book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer refers to the, to the Psalms as God's prayer book, hmm. which I thought was a, that got me started reading the Psalms more intentionally than God's uh, prayer book. Looking at it at the, uh, through the service book. Yeah, thank you. I guess one thing that I confess, I sometimes vicariously uh, jump on what God's doing to my enemies when, when, like David, I deserve a lot of that condemnation or sh- that the shame should be on me instead of my enemies or God should be destroying me instead of my enemies. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, uh, I, you know, life has a way of humbling us in that regard and I think changes our posture and view of others. I mean, it should create space, I think, for a lot of um, a lot of graciousness in our attitude towards others on multiple things. Yeah. All right, we need to go because I know some of you have children to pick up. Blessings. We'll see you next week.